I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. So today, uh, we have Poshmark, which is now a public company. Um, they had actually originally filed to go public back in the fall, I believe in September of 2020, and then it kind of fell off the radar. Uh, we didn't really know what was going on with them. And they kind of resurfaced. They filed their S1 in mid-December of 2020. And then, you know, just just in the past few days here, hit the uh, exchanges. You know, here's the uh, the first take on it uh, from, from Yahoo Finance that their IPO, uh, you know, their stock price is soaring 140%. IPO'd at $42 and... It opened at $97. So, you know what this means? This is back to Bill Gurley. This is why you do direct listings. Kind of curious why Poshmark, because when you actually look at when the first announcement was back in September of 2020, and then them filing the S1 in mid-December, to then now going actually public in mid-January of 21. Why didn't they switch gears and go direct listing? We've seen this with Roblox, who scuttled their uh, their IPO, which was supposed to happen in December. And, and frankly, I think they did that correctly. They actually did another fundraise before actually going public. And now I guess they're looking at doing a direct listing, even though you can now do a direct listing and raise capital. Anyway, long story short, looks like Roblox is going to do... Um, a direct listing rather than IPO, which I think makes sense for exactly this reason, right? Uh, what this means is that Poshmark basically left 100% of their value on the table. They could have literally just doubled the price. They could have raised double the money. And who benefits from that are they, you know, the, the bankers and the investors that got in at the $42 share price and then you know, doubled their money um, upon, you know, upon this thing uh, actually hitting the public markets. Right now, though, it has gone down from the opening price to about 75 bucks a share. So is, is Poshmark a good buy? What is Poshmark? Let's back up a second here. Poshmark is a secondhand marketplace. It's positioned differently than a Farfetch uh, and the Real Real, which are the two leading luxury goods marketplaces. Uh, you also have Goat and StockX, which are sneaker marketplaces. You know, the average order price on Poshmark is like $30 or something, right? You, you go to any of those other four I just mentioned, and it's going to be multiples higher than that, what their average order price is. So this is more about, you know, kind of ev secondhand everyday clothing than it is about that luxury, hard to find, you know, really high priced items. So doesn't mean it's a bad business. It's just when you when you look at like secondhand uh, uh, textile clothing marketplaces and you say oh well there's you know there's a bunch of these they actually all have their own niches and these aren't you know billion dollar niches these are tens of billions of dollars niches right so this is a thirty to fifty billion dollar industry this kind of like secondhand you know resale clothing industry so it's not a small niche by any means but that's what you see. Name of the show, right? Winner take all. There are one or two dominant marketplaces uh, in each vertical. So you have uh, Farfetch and and the Real Real as like the two dominant kind of 
luxury goods. And then you have GOAT and StockX, which are more so focused on shoes and are now kind of getting into like watches and some other things like that. They're also watch marketplaces, um, which I'm going to touch on here in a little bit. And then you have these kind of lower end secondhand uh, uh, clothing resale marketplaces, Poshmark being, um, you know, the one that just went public. There's also another one called ThreadUp, which confidentially filed to go public actually in October of 2020. You know, so this is also a similar thing, kind of like in the brewing stage. We don't know exactly when when the S1 is going to be filed. We don't know exactly when when they're going to IPO, how they're going to IPO. Is this an IPO? Is this a direct listing? Still lots of stuff unknown here, but ThreadUp is, is in the running. There are other European uh, secondhand clothing resale marketplaces called um, Vinted is is one of the leaders, if not the leader in Europe. Another one is called Depop. And so again, you got winner-take-all dynamics here. You got only one or two winners in each of these different verticals. Each vertical can have one or two winners, okay? But the question is, if you're an investor looking at Poshmark, right, is are they going to be the winner and 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 is there upside here? So, you know, to that story, let's look at before I really dive into the Poshmark S1, um, let's just look at uh, Farfetch and the Real Real. So Farfetch has done phenomenally well with COVID, uh, as we have seen Goat and StockX uh, similarly do very well. Uh, Farfetch we've covered here. Can see this is this is the kind of stuff you're buying on Farfetch. Um, I don't even know what is that. That's not leopard. Kind of looks like. Kind of looks like rocks or like wood chips and in, in the desert. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. Sure, it's expensive. So Q3 sales jump. This is Q3 2020 sales. Uh, jump 71% for Farfetch GMV. So sales, that's revenue. GMV is total throughput. Jump 62%. This article does a better job doing the year-over-year comparison here. Farfetch GMV jumps to almost 800 million. And... We've seen similar leaps here with StockX and GOAT uh, last year. We also used StockX and GOAT earlier in the year to predict Farfetch to, to beat on their earnings. You made some money if you were watching the show. GOAT and StockX were releasing their results and they're private and they were releasing their results. And so we took a, a, you know, a not so distant uh, gander to say, well, you know, I bet Farfetch is going to outperform too. And they did and they popped big time. So anyway, uh, Farfetch here. So they're at 800 million. They were at about 500 million in GMV in Q3 year over year, right? 2019. So 500 million to 800 million year over year. That is phenomenal growth. Phenomenal growth. If you annualize Farfetch's, Farfetch's GMV, if they can keep that up, which uh, that's a lot of growth, right? Year over year growth. But if they can keep that up and, and they're at a, say, a $2.5 billion GMV run rate, Farfetch today, their stock is, they're trading at about $20 billion market cap. So you can peg it, peg it at roughly a 10x GMV. That's a, that's a very healthy uh, GMV multiple, like extremely healthy uh, GMV multiple. Okay. Um, very healthy. Now let's look at Real Real. Real Real did not do that well uh, as compared to 
far-fetched. So real, real is going to be a, I would call them a, not a distant, but a certainly a, a laggard number two. Uh, they had 17% quarter over quarter growth. Uh, that's at two, about $250 million in GMV. This is Q3 2020. Total revenue uh, was a year over year decrease. Mm, yikes, that's not good. So they had quarter over quarter growth, but it's not the kind of numbers we're seeing from Farfetch, which is definitely the clear winner, clear leader in this uh, luxury good marketplace space. And as a result of that, you know, when you look at real, real uh, market cap here, two and a half billion dollars. Again, just annualize the 250. That's like a two and a half X uh, GMV multiple, right? So 10 X to two and a half X GMV multiple. I'm overgeneralizing here, gang, but you know, you can kind of see the, the both goalposts here. Uh, so let's, let's back up and look at Poshmark. Poshmark right now ending at a $75 uh, uh, share price is about $5.5 billion uh, market cap. If, if they were actually at the $42 share price, we're talking around the threes, not half, but you know, uh, right around $3 billion market cap is, 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 is essentially roughly where they priced their IPO. Okay, so let's keep that in mind. Uh, and and let's look at some of the numbers for these guys. So brass tax, they got 200 million items in you know in Poshmark, roughly that thirty dollar uh, average order size. They have generated four billion dollars in GMV since 2011. One point three billion dollars uh, in the past 12 months, ending Q3 of 2020. So this is all kind of apples to apples comparison, right? And that was a 30% year over year growth. They had a billion, show you, they had a billion dollars in GMV in 2019, right? So for the same period ending in Q3 2020, that's not a, that's not an annual, right? That's not a quarterly GMV. That's an annualized 1.3 uh, compared to, um, to 1 billion. So actually, if you look at the real real, they are bigger in GMV than the real real Poshmark is. Okay. And by market cap, even at the $42 share price, which which Poshmark was originally contemplating their IPO, Poshmark would have also uh, been been bigger, slightly bigger by market cap than the real real. So that's that's kind of in line um, if if you think about it in that sense. You know, I think the real question for Poshmark is, are they the number one winner, right? Are they, are they going to have that winner-take-all dynamic? Should they be closer to the 10x GMV multiple, which far, I mean, that's very high, okay? Um, but should they be at, at that end of the spectrum or should they be closer to the 2.5x GMV multiple, uh, which is where real real is? So if you just take $1.3 billion times 2.5, um, you know, that's roughly where they were actually pricing their IPO, low threes, low to mid threes in, in market cap, right? Should they be 5X GMV? Should they be uh, 4X GMV, which is actually right around where they are right now is a 4X GMV at $75 a share? Let's look a little bit more at, at some of the other stats here and, and we can kind of figure out where, where Poshmark is in, in the market. They had 31 million active users. That just means like, I guess, people browsing. Um, 
because that number falls off quite significantly. A fifth of those people are actually active buyers. And then 4. million active, 4.5 million active sellers. Okay. So that's some of the, uh, you know, comparing and contrasting there. Hold on. Let me fix this light. Okay. Um, Poshmark comparison. The, the leader in Europe is a company called Vinted. And Vinted had an interview. This was in 2019. Here is Thomas, the CEO. This was October 2019. Right? So Q3 2019, or you know, we're Q4, but looking, looking at the year ending in Q3. And he lists some stats here. He says, we got 120 million items on Vinted. They've got a $17 average order price, so it's about half of that 30-ish dollar one for Poshmark. And look at this. They've got 23 million European users versus Poshmark's 30. Again, these are a year old, right? This is, this is October 2019, so these, these stats are a year old. So 23 million users. He says in France is their biggest market. In Europe, we expect an annual GMV of 1.3 billion euros. Okay, so that's what, 1.5 billion US? That means in 2019, uh, last year, Q4, 20, you know, ending Q3 2019, so the same period that Poshmark was doing a billion dollars in GMV, these guys were doing one and a half, right? And since then, Poshmark grew. 30% to 1.3 billion. They still did not eclipse. Poshmark today is still smaller than where Vinted was a year ago. Okay. Uh, more than a year ago now. But then he actually gives even more color here. And now this is in France. France has now become the leading market for Vinted with 10 million registered members and a GMV growth of 230% year over year. That doesn't mean they are growing their 1.5 billion, 230%. But if this is the largest pocket, largest uh, portion, largest market for Vinted, and that's growing at 230%, that's a very strong indicator to say with some degree of confidence that Vinted should be growing much faster than a 30% year-over-year growth rate on their GMV, right? Which is what Poshmark did in that same period of time. So if Vinted could keep up if, if that was from 2018 to 2019, 230% GMV growth in their biggest market, France, if that is somewhat even resembling what the rest of the market is like for Vinted, we're talking about two businesses on very different trajectories here. Now, uh, Poshmark is raising money so that they can expand into Europe, and Vinted is a European uh, business. So... This isn't saying that these things are directly competitive. They're not, they're not, I mean, there's some overlap, I'd say geographically, but, but they really aren't going head to head yet. I think what's interesting though, is that as you've seen with Farfetch, where Farfetch was really a European company, they've expanded into the US. They just did a date JV with Richemont to go into China. Um, Richemont, you know, uh, uh, famously 
is the owner and you know uh, champion of Uxnet Porte, the linear competitor to Farfetch. And the interesting story with Richemont is uh, they have they have uh, really started to embrace marketplaces. And I'm going to talk more about the the some other um, uh, uh, act, marketplace activity from Richemont in a second here. But eventually, you're going to see these these platforms and these marketplaces cross territories, right? Poshmark go to Europe, and could we see Vinted come to the U.S.? I don't know. They haven't announced plans to to file for to go public, but clearly, they have a a very strong business in. Europe now is Poshmark going to try and use this money to acquire Vinted or to acquire Depop, who I think is the number two player? I don't know, but we do want to compare and contrast these things to think about going back to Poshmark. What's the right valuation for them? So Vinted growing faster, but in Europe, thread up we don't have as much visibility on, um, but I think it is safe to say that Poshmark is the largest in the United States. Should they be at a you know, a, a four or five X GMV multiple versus a, a, an eight. <clears throat> I, I think going much higher is overpriced. If we look at a hundred dollars a share, which is, which is actually where, you know, their IPO uh, ballooned to at, at open this kind of middle range feels a lot more comfortable to me. I, I think that they are the leader, at least of the public ones and, and certainly in their market, not to say that, Going into Europe, if they want to use this money that they've raised to go into Europe, that's expensive and not easy to do. And clearly, I don't know, you know, their business doesn't seem, the core actually doesn't seem as strong in the United States as it should be. It might actually be premature for them to actually try and launch internationally or go and do M&A internationally. You know, you need that engine humming here. And typically when you have these kind of downturns cyclically, these secondhand marketplaces tend tend to do well, right? Because now you're going to get more supply. People are people are going to want to put more inventory onto the marketplace because um, they need some some funds, right? And they clear stuff out of their closet and and, and get some funds for that. So um, I, I would be hesitant to really go much above where where Poshmark is today. I think it's a fine business. It just it isn't standing out to me to be really kind of far-fetched level or or vinted level of of growth and dominance. And um, you know, Farfetch obviously is in in multiple different countries here and 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 they just seem to be on fire. So the aggressive growth story here to to justify a much higher um, either revenue and GMV multiple, however you want to look at the valuation, don't really see it there for, for Poshmark right now. The interesting thing though is the role of uh, these traditional businesses, whether Neiman Marcus getting a minority stake in Fashion File, Richemont uh, buying this company called uh, Watchfinder. Obviously, Richemont just did the JV with Farfetch to go into China. And that was a significant departure, right? Because Porte was a linear e-commerce reseller competitor to Farfetch, right? Ukes and, and, and Farfetch were the battle of the two different business models, the, the linear e-com and, and the marketplace, uh, both having similar types of inventory, both trying to appeal to the same type of customer, but strategically from a business model standpoint, 
two very different approaches. So we recently saw Richemont say, okay, I'm going to embrace this new thing called, you know, marketplace. Interestingly enough, this actually isn't Richemont's first foray into marketplace. And we saw them buy a company called Watchfinder uh, back in 2018. Richemont owns a bunch of different luxury watch brands, Cartier being one of them. Name of the show, winner take all. The, the leading watch marketplace is easily this company called Chrono24. If you look at the Alexa you know, traffic rankings here, you can, that's one. There are many different indicators you can look at. Obviously, you know what the CEOs are saying, or you can just go look at the inventory. Go look at the inventory available on Chrono and line that up against Chronext, which is another competitor, or line that up against um, Watchfinder. You're going to see much better inventory on Chrono24 here. Here you can see their, their website rankings and, um, you can see globally 3,800. You can see in the US 2,300. Uh, when you start to compare this against, say, you know, Watchfinder's traffic, obviously some of these, you know, folks do, um, you know, they have apps. And so you're not, you're not capturing the total picture here. But when you look at Watchfinder, it's it's an upward trajectory, but it's a hundred thousand, right? We're, it's a completely different league of traffic in the three thousands versus a hundred thousand. So you need that demand if you're going to attract the supply. That is the key to platform competition. What's kind of surprising to me is that it, it would be very easy for Richemont to rig this unfairly for Watchfinder. Really, what that comes down to is simple um, supply, right? You know, my whole thing there is you need a lot of demand to get the supply. In the watch market for these luxury watches, it's so hard to get the supply. You'll literally have $100,000 watches that the these boutiques, they'll get one watch a year. And I mean, it, 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 it's gone the moment they get the call that they're going to get the watch. And if they could get 25 of that same $100,000 watch, it'd all be spoken for in two seconds. The the market for these luxury watches is it's just insane right now. Um, it's always been insane, and just you know, <laughs> you look at the the prices on these watches, they could actually make good investments. But anyway, the supply it's all about the supply in in pretty much any marketplace, but especially luxury goods. So the 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 reason why uh, manufacturers and luxury brands bring so much strategic value to these um, these, uh, you know, different kind of clothing or, or watch type or sneaker marketplaces is because the manufacturer can bring supply. So if Richemont wanted to solve this demand challenge, which is clearly challenged, how can they bring unique inventory to WatchFinder? I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. Now, there's a lot of infighting. I'm sure, you know, Cartier doesn't want to, to have their brand diluted by distributing Cartier uh, on WatchFinder. And I'm sure there's so much just other nuance and poli internal politics that I'm not even scratching the surface on. But um, fundamentally, that is the advantage. How do you, how do you solve for supply? Um, and if you can't get demand juiced, which WatchFinder has not been able to do, 
it's growing, but it's 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 still nowhere in in the same league. They got to solve for demand in another way, and unique supply could be a great mechanism to do that. Um, but that's what you often see is you see these manufacturers. I guess I don't know, like Watchfinder. Maybe if you could reverse time and go back to 2018, maybe Watchfinder and um, Chrono 24 were more peers. But clearly, Chrono 24 has it has now really taken off, and um, it's just not a comparison. So you got to figure out strategically for Rishma, you know, are they going to help maybe now Farfetch try to go into watches, and uh, or are they going to believe in in a in a vertical specific marketplace around watches and these kinds of things, as we're seeing in sneakers. You have yet to see a manufacturer really embrace a sneaker marketplace that is, I think. Um, and oversight and a strategic vulnerability for for these manufacturers that want to control their distribution channels. But you have seen Foot Locker take a hundred million dollar position into Goat, which I think was a a, a brilliant investment uh, on their part. More to come on this space. We'll see what happens with with ThreadUp, and uh, we'll see we'll see what happens you know with with Rishma on this space, but. Um, there's a lot of interesting activity in these kind of secondhand, it still could be new, right? It, secondhand goods. Um, you could have new sneakers, you could have a new watch, but it's just, it's not going through that traditional retail channel. Um, it's kind of these secondhand different marketplaces here. Let's go to Telegram. So, um, you know, on this note, last week I railed pretty hard against the tech monopolies about them overstepping boundaries when it comes to content censorship. And, you know, I, I think the dust still hadn't settled at the time. I called them fascists. I still call them fascists. Um, but the dust still hasn't, the dust has now started to settle. And um, I, hit them, I hit them right between the eyes as they deserved it. Completely inappropriate, the actions they've taken. And they can't put the genie back in the bottle at this point. It's a very sad day. Um, I use Atlas to demarcate that very sad course of events where these tech monopolies have just, you know, they've been having a myriad of transgressions over months, if not years now that we've covered on the show. And that, um, you know, Atlas was really a culmination of, of uh, them kind of uh, going past the point of no return, right? There's no way to, to kind of make up for the damage and, and um, them opening up Pandora's box in the way that they have. now. Um, we actually had very positive receptivity on the show from our viewers. So thank you. Um, hey, you know, you don't have to agree with me, but you know, this was a very delicate, still is a very delicate moment in the trajectory for these tech monopolies. I'm going to call it the way I see it and it is not okay what they have done. And strong language is entirely appropriate to characterize these missteps that they have made, strategic missteps that they have made. And so what you have seen since then is you've seen Jack Dorsey is, issue a basically kind of like half-hearted statement saying that they, I guess, you know, I think he kind of said that they made a mistake um, taking the actions that they did. I think the only reason Jack Dorsey issued that statement is what I was hinting at earlier, which is that I'm short Twitter. Twitter was not in a good position business-wise coming out of Q3. No. They were not good. Um, they were struggling to just maintain engagement at 30 million active users in the United States, let alone actually show any growth. It was literally flat. 
and you know they were trying everything in the book um, that they could to to keep keep it flat and and not have it um, actually show a decline. And here you can see what's happened to their stock ever since. Not good, and I don't think it's going to get better. Um, they are going to release their earnings early February, and we're going to be covering that closely. And here you can see, look at their fateful leader. Look at this guy. Isn't he just a stunning exemplar of, of, yeah, look at the, look at the last word here, leadership. Jack Dorsey just explained why Twitter's ban of Trump is an extraordinary uh, failure of leadership. You know, he's kind of half taking responsibility, more so not taking responsibility. I think he's seeing the numbers. He's seeing the numbers fall off a cliff. That's what he's doing. And I don't know what you do. He probably is just going on another ayahuasca trip right now, growing his beard out a little bit more. So anyway, uh, Twitter, not in a good position. The tech monopolies, though, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, pretty much unaffected by this. That shows the power of the tech monopoly. That shows very different market positioning that the tech monopolies have versus, versus a Twitter, which is you know $36 billion market cap right now. Anyway, there is more uh, actual uh, you know, validation for the stance that I took on the show here. Here, these are two articles from the information. And you can see here, uh, Now, blocking Trump puts the future of the internet at risk. Let's not celebrate the platforms for kicking Trump off. Now, this isn't just about Trump, okay? And, and that is really the, that is, that's the, that's, that's the biggest kind of gotcha in all of this, right? You try and drag you into the partisan politics, which then make you take a side. Are you right? Are you left? And, and you need to take a step back and, and, and move past the partisanship, which is going on and trying to divide this country um, and happening all over the globe. You need to say, and you need to look past that and say, um, is this censorship okay? And it's not. And the censorship has been happening for months, quarters, and years. And we've been covering it at, at, at every moment. But then the moment now it starts to get political, then you try and say, oh, well, you're, you know, you, you, everyone falls into their party, party lines and party talking points. And that's what we need to move past. We need to look at these things objectively. Here is the really gotcha on this whole thing around censorship. Here is why um, big tech enjoys the stick of censorship is because it's actually a competitive advantage for them. If now the talking point is that any challenger platform, content platform, communication platform, telegram, I'm going to talk about in a second here, social network. If they don't have adequate censorship capability in place, oh, well, you know, they're a menace to society. They are doing a disservice to society. That's now the narrative. And do you remember years ago when the fallout from the 2016 election and Zuckerberg said, we're going to have to invest billions of dollars and hire thousands of people to get this censorship thing right uh, and, and, and keep out the Russians and all that stuff, right? And what happened to their stock price? It actually went up. And that kind of seemed counterintuitive. But now does it make sense? 
that Facebook can invest billions of dollars and hire thousands of people. That's no problem. Can the up and coming startups hire thousands of people? They're struggling to just hire tens of people. Some of these places have literally less than 10 employees, but they are a top thousand website in the United States. Okay. Factor that in less than 10 full time employees, top thousand website. Less than $10 million in funding, top thousand website. Okay. And then what you say is, hey, social media platform, hey, content platform, hey, communication platform. You don't do censorship. You, you, you allow all of this harmful content. Well, is the, is the content illegal? Is it breaking any laws? Um, are they under investigation by any federal agencies? And then, and then, and then you say, no, no, they're not. Um, but, but the narrative is that these up and coming challenger startups to Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Twitter are bad. And even though they do regulate and, and they do censor, right? They do rules and standards. Every platform has to do rules and standards. It's one of the four core functions of, of the platform business model. You need to curate access and you need to curate usage. What we're talking about is there is a spectrum of curating usage. And the tech monopolies, they're off the chart. The chart ends here. They're all the way over here. They're out of the frame of the video, okay? But what they've done now is they've shifted the goalposts. They've shifted the goalposts to make everyone think that if you don't do aggressive censorship and, and usage moderation, oh, and then you don't have a high-priced, you know, million-dollar salaried employee who's going to be your chief of fill-in-the-blank. Um, I think they, you know, they got all different names for it. Some PC term you pay that team millions of dollars. That budget for that team of five people or 10 people, not even all the people that then make the tools to implement the censorship and then, you know, to monitor all the, right? Like not even all that overhead, just simply your team that creates the policy around your rules and standards. You're paying them literally more money than the entire budget for your competitive, competitive social media and content platforms. That seems like a pretty good strategy, doesn't it? So now you've shifted the narrative to say, well, if you aren't spending literally tens of millions of dollars on your content censorship usage moderation initiatives, well, you're, you're not a viable company. You are you're a bad company. And, and no one should use you. The media should black, blacklist you right away. Investors should not touch you with a 10-foot pole, and they're trying to ostracize these people. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to come back to Telegram in a second, but that's what's going on here. Content censorship is now a tool of big tech to not only stifle free speech, but also stifle their competitors to take that huge overhead and costs, which big tech can underwrite, and then try to um, enforce that will upon their smaller competitors who are cash strapped, resource strapped, and are just trying to build a product. They can still comply with the laws. They can still take down, um, you know, overly harmful or uh, um, you know aggressive, harassing speech. Right? They can. They can still do that. But but their whole premise, Telegram here, uh, which I'll back up to. The whole premise is to be that bastion of free speech. Right. 
um, to say that unless you're violating the law of creating content, right? Child pornography, um, aggressive, malicious, hateful content, you know, that trying to go after someone, um, well, then that content's going to stay up. And even if people disagree with it, right? On, um, like, for example, our Jim Rickards interview, that was too hot for TV. You got to go to Rumble to really get that full interview because you're seeing the censorship in play. The censorship is in full blast. And, you know, now we need to understand, because of Atlas, that we live in a bifurcated society and that now you need to, you need to place content and you need to distribute content differently. And you got to play to these two different worlds. Um, it really is a, a bifurcation. And um, there's a whole now kind of free speech tech ecosystem, which had been building for years, which just benefited greatly from this diaspora of users leaving big tech, uh, Twitter included, and are looking for alternative platforms. So Telegram is a, here's this article, uh, Telegram founder and talks to raise debt amid apps explosive growth. They uh, have experienced a sharp influx in new users who flocked to the private messaging app after rival WhatsApp changes privacy policies. Now WhatsApp is trying to kind of co-opt the privacy and have Facebook privacy apply to WhatsApp. That's why the WhatsApp founders left in protest. Dubai-based startup, which you know is really pre-revenue, but they have tremendous usage and tremendous growth. And they're actually looking at raising a debt round, which, which speaks to the power of of the business, you know, to so be like a convertible note, convertible debt, right? So if they go public, that that would convert, and and, and the uh, lenders would get priority in that. Um, but they tried to do they tried to do a um, an ICO, which is a initial coin offering, and the SEC beat them up aggressively for that. It it, it faces an April deadline to repay money to investors who backed its ambition plan, ambitious ambitious plan. And uh, to create a digital currency using blockchain technology. And they were going to raise um, securities agency allowed Telegram to keep 30% of the 1. billion it raised to fund the project. While it has repaid some of the money, some European backers are still owed their original investment plus 10% interest. Oh man, ICOs are, are, are funny. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and you got to watch out for the SEC. So anyway, they're looking at how to raise capital. The media and now big tech have now joined at the hip, which is ironic considering that big tech has destroyed the media's business model. Um, and they're now trying to brand these companies as uh, insufficient, right? As kind of like forums for hate speech. Don't believe the hype, gang. Here, here's the ending piece of this. Content issues. As it grows in popularity, Telegram will need to likely need to grapple more with unsavory, illicit, or dangerous posts in public channels. It has faced similar complaints in the past. A uh, popular hub for is Islamic State group militants. Um, after Twitter cracked down on the activity, researchers who study jihadi shift from Twitter to Telegram over the last decade have seen parallels in recent days with the movements of right-wing extremists. Our new group on Telegram 
Parlor Lifeboat attracted nearly 16,000 users who were encouraged not to use their real names or photos. And um, so now this guy is a senior research fellow at George Washington University's program on extremism. It's a migration in a sense from one platform to another, right? So here is the branding. Look at Telegram. Uh, if, if you are an investor thinking of giving Telegram this convertible debt, well, you better think twice because Telegram uh, is a bad apple. <clears throat> Look at this other thing from the information. Corey and Alex tell the story of messaging app Telegram and its mysterious founder. Uh, can the company figure out how to make money from its growing popularity and will it crack down further on chat groups with the potential to spark real world violence? Okay. Look. There's plenty of precedent for what is illegal or legal when it comes to content censorship. Those boundaries are very clear, right? What content needs to be taken down because it is illegal or it has crossed a line in terms of it being harmful uh, or, or what it means to you know harass someone clearly and then child pornography and these other issues. There's a lot of precedent on this. What these articles are not saying is that these platforms are violating any kind of law, right? That they have active investigations against them, right? The Telegram is being investigated by the FBI because they have, um, <clears throat> you know, this illegal harassing content. You know, users are harassing uh, other users and they're not doing anything about it. And, um, or, you know, that's not the story. There's illegal content. They're not taking it down. They don't even have a good content moderation to, <clears throat> to have a legal communication platform. That's not the story. What the story is, is that you got a company which doesn't even really make money right now. They're just trying to figure out how to pay their server bills. That's the top of the article. They're trying to figure out how to pay their server bills and keep the damn app running. Because they have explosive growth. How do I just pay the damn server bills to keep the lights on? That's what this mysterious founder, Pavel Durov, is trying to figure out. That's what this guy's trying to do. And he's trying to get some money uh, to pave the way, to keep the, the business free or, you know, keep their, literally calls it, you know, their whole thing is about free speech. This is from the founder. We've had surges of downloads before throughout our seven-year seven year history of protecting user privacy. But this time is different, right? Last year, uh, it added 1.5 million users a day. Telegram has over 500 million monthly users, one quarter of WhatsApp. In previous three days alone, Telegram added 25 million users. Three days. That's like 8 million users a day. Okay. It's saying last year it added 1.5 million new users a day, which is a lot. Okay. 1.5 million users a day. That's a lot. That just got 5X'd. There is a massive exodus of people and it and has been evidenced by the, the comments and the feedback we've gotten on the show from last week's stream. Is evidenced by some of these articles you're even seeing on <clears throat> very tech-friendly blogs like this information site, which are saying this stuff was not okay. There's a massive exodus, and 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 the tech big tech is scared. They are scared at the power of these alternative platforms. 
which we are actively supporting. We're on Rumble. We're spinning up Daily Motion, which is another YouTube competitor owned by Vivendi. Um, we are putting our content and we are putting some exclusive content away from YouTube. I'm not on Twitter anymore. What Twitter did is unacceptable. I don't use Twitter anymore. I'm off Twitter. My point is now the narrative is for us, Telegram is an idea. It is the idea that everyone on this planet has a right to be free, Gaurav wrote in 2018. He has repeatedly assailed Facebook's privacy mishaps and the security of WhatsApp. He is also land-based at the U.S. government. He also echoed, see this, they try and make it partisan. Conservative U.S. lawmakers saying people no, want, no longer want to be held hostage by tech monopolies. So, this is the narrative. Not telegrams under investigation. They can't manage their business properly, but no. They aren't doing enough for content censorship. This article even says how much his server fees are. The guy is paying the company's main expenses running servers. Two years ago, it forecast that server costs would swell to $220 million by 2021. All right? $220 million. So He's paying hundreds of millions of dollars in server fees. He's just trying to pay the server bills. Yet, no, now, now everyone's saying, you got to spend... You got to spend tens of millions of dollars on hiring an army of content censors. No, the answer is you don't. You can run a perfectly well-run platform business doing appropriate content moderation without spending tens of millions of dollars and hiring hundreds, if not thousands of employees. It is the media and big tech which are trying to now push the narrative that if you don't do those things... You are a forum for hate speech. You are a forum for extremism and terrorism. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Until there's an article that says Telegram or these other platforms are under investigation. They have illegal content that they're not taking down. Yada, yada, yada. Um, don't believe the hype. Okay. Uh, Big tech is very strong and they have influenced many, 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 many people um, to believing some not so smart things, which is, guess what? All just in the interest of big tech. Big tech has overstepped their boundaries. And now you even see Tim Cook walking back the parlor ban and they know they messed up. They know they messed up. Jack Dorsey even basically came out and said it, but with his tail between his legs. Um. They know they messed up. They know they crossed that boundary. They have been crossing the boundary for months, if not quarters, if not years. But now everyone really saw them cross the boundary. Thank you, Atlas. And um, it's too little too late. They're never going to be able to regain that trust. The dam has broken. The dawn of the alternative content slash social media slash communication platforms is here. Uh, and big tech and the media are trying to do everything they can to try to stifle it. Um, <clears throat> I don't think it's going to work. I think we're going to see these companies uh, pull it through. And I think you got tens of millions of users clearly here, if not hundreds of millions uh, that don't think, also don't think it's okay. And they're leaving. So I implore all of you, do the same thing. Leave. Go try a new fill-in-the-blank 
content, social media, communication platform. Get off of Facebook, Apple, Google, Amazon, Twitter. Amazon, uh, um, not in the social media business, but still go try another competitor to them. Um, Everyone has that much power. You may not have much power to do anything else, but at the very least, everyone does have the power for your own personal use to not use it. And uh, I know, I know that's what I'm doing. And uh, that's what the show is doing. And, and we'll continue to really push our content in as many places as possible um, outside of the Tech Monopoly's domains and, um, and, and actually give exclusive content off of YouTube, for example, and off of other, other big tech platforms. Um, <clears throat> so that's it for us today on, on Winner Take All. Don't have time to go over the Bumble IPO, but that will be the next thing. Uh, Bumble is IPOing. And, um, you know, they are a, a Tinder competitor owned by Match Group. They were acquired by Blackstone in a kind of a new tech acquisition for Blackstone. Usually they don't do that. Steve Schwartzman, you know, famously says he doesn't know how to buy things that don't make money. The gotcha on Bumble is that Bumble actually was and still is profitable. So that's how I think Steve and the team at Blackstone is able to get their mind around, you know, a deal like Bumble was they were actually a profitable uh, platform business, kind of a, a unique thing these days. Um, and now are, are coming up on uh, uh, an IPO in short order here. So we'll cover that uh, later this week. And thanks very much for joining. We'll talk to you soon.